Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. This is our Belmont Stakes weekend recap show. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornatal, back with you in the Brooklyn Bunker once again and very excited to reflect on what was a terrific weekend of racing out at Belmont Park and here to join me. First off, we've got the usual co-host on most of these In The Money media podcast endeavors. He's calling in from the planet Texas. He's the people's champion. He's Jonathan Kinchin. What's up, JK? PTF, what's going on? I, uh, I I missed Belmont Day, but I was there Belmont Friday, and we got to hang out a little bit. Uh, what a great weekend of racing that was. Uh, be nice to be Chad Brown, right? When you like seven graded stakes. <laughs> Something obscene. We'll have more about uh, at least one of his winners a little bit later in the show. First, I want to bring in this show's other co-host and really the brains behind the operation when it comes to the In the Ring Pedigree podcast. I'm talking about Windstar Farms, Sean Tugel. Sean, what's shaking? Oh, uh, just got done seeing you in New York and uh, and looking forward to talking to our guest, who was uh, lucky enough to breed one of those superstars that we got to witness. Um, so, but uh, finally, the rain looks like it's lifted from Lexington for a little bit. And uh, sunny skies are here for racing and uh, here in Kentucky. So, JK, you and I are going to be deconstructing large portions of the weekend from a horse player perspective on this week's Naira Betts show. So we're going to put a pin in your thoughts reflecting on the racing over the course of the weekend, unless you have anything to piggyback on what I'm about to ask Sean. But, Sean, from your point of view, I just wanted to hear what you thought some of the highlights were over the course of the weekend. Well, I think um, the, the continued domination by World of Trouble, uh, Rushing Fall, Brooks and Mortar. Um, it's exciting to see the superstars show up and continue to race again this year and carry it over from last year. Um, certainly, Mark Cassie, what a phenomenal job winning two jewels of the Triple Crown with two different horses. Um, and, you know, as we previously discussed last week, uh, the Met Mile lived up to all the expectations and uh, loved the race call, loved the way it unfolded, um, and, and just thought, you know, we got to see two of the absolute superstars and monsters that we get right now and, and battled it out. And, and, and Thunder Snow, he's going to break through and win one of these big races here in America one of these days. The big stars did all show up. It was an exciting race that lived up to the hype. And there was a lot of hype, believe me. I was a big part of promoting it. And, you know, like I said, we'll go all deep into the weeds about the trips and all that stuff on the other show. But you mentioned bricks and mortar, Sean, and that was where I wanted to go next with just a, a, one of these outsider-type questions I'll ask you. What does an American turf horse have to do to establish himself as a potential sire in general? And how exciting of a prospect is this one? You know, he's a little bit of a different type. He, he kind of has two careers. Uh, you know, early on, he was a horse that him and Yoshida, his three-year-olds, were battling it out. And uh, then he went to the sidelines for over a year. Uh, and came back and, and obviously shows that when horses get, get older and mature and, and, and can just the type of talent that they can mature into. Um, you know, long-distance turf horses have a little bit of uh, – they're a little bit behind the eight ball here in America. 
Um, but certainly, A, you have to win at the highest level over the, over the best horses. And I think um, you have to do it in dominating fashion. Look, I think he's run five or six straight uh, triple-digit buyer speed figures. I don't think there's any horses on the dirt out of maybe uh, Matoli and McKenzie who've, who've matched those speeds. Obviously, World of Trouble is, has won as well. But, no, you know, nobody's able to dethrone him here right now. And um, so – and he has the pedigree to do it. He's out of a great stakes winner. And uh, certainly he's by Giants Causeway, who we, who we lost last year to the breeding industry here. But um, he's doing the things that uh, will make many stud farms pay attention to him. And he's doing them on the biggest stages in front of the, the people who make decisions to breed to stallions. So When a stallion is lost, like Giants Causeway, um, is there a greater market for a horse like bricks and mortar to, for people to think that can kind of replace him in, in the market, or is it not that simple? Well, Giants Causeway, uh, was a much, was an older stallion, a status stallion. He was over 20 years of age. Um, so people would be looking already looking for sons of his, uh, horses like fed biz horses like carpe diem. Um, so they're already out there. Um, if he, if it was a younger stallion, and he didn't have sons already populating throughout the breeding industry. There may be more of a clamoring to try to get your hands on them. Uh, um, but, but certainly you already have many different outlets to the Giants Causeway blood already. So there wouldn't be that type of uh, necessity to, to try to grab him per se. What now from a stallion building standpoint, would, would his profile be elevated? And if you were involved with him, would you at some point try to get him onto the dirt to see if he could win a graded stakes on the dirt? And, and how much would that elevate him in, in terms of being a stallion? In previous mindsets in American breeding, without that dirt form, there were times that it was very difficult. But, but I do think in the last decade you've seen, obviously, you know, if you go back over history, the horses that Bull Hancock brought over were all from Europe. They had no dirt form. And they're legendary stallions here. Um you know, there's nothing that says this horse can't get you a dirt horse, although his mother was a turf horse. Um, and Giants Causeway, the only dirt race he ever had in his life was the Breeders' Cup Classic that he almost uh, almost pulled off the upset of Tisnow. So, and he was, you could quite, you could argue that, that his sons over here were, were much better on dirt than they were on turf, although he was well represented on both surfaces. Um, I don't think... You know, you may, try, you know, in the beginning, you may try to breed a certain type of mare to him. Um, would a dirt, would a dirt win, uh, move him up the ranks? Absolutely. Uh, but I don't necessarily and don't foresee any any change at this moment. JK, I've got one for you. Just reflecting on the weekend from a breeding perspective. What else did you see that made you think could have an impact on uh, on the USA breeding industry in particular? What other angles did you come away wanting to ask somebody with Sean's expertise about? Well, I think that, that Matoli was probably already trending in the right direction to be a stallion, but I think the performance getting the, the one-turn mile win and with a fast time against really good horses after taking some pace pressure, I think that probably – from an undereducated standpoint, I would assume that that had propelled him into kind of not elite status, but a very, a very viable option for a stallion farm to, to reach out to him, to, to try to make something work 
um, you know, having that speed and with a little proof of stamina. Be interesting to see what they do with him moving forward. I would imagine that a, a graded stakes or even a grade one going a mile and an eight for him, if they were to take that that extra step, would would really be a, a profile builder for him. But I'm not necessarily sure they'll they'll go in that direction. I haven't really heard. A mile and an eighth in a race like the Whitney would seem to make sense, though. I don't know, Sean. At the same time, when you have a horse like that with the brilliant speed, do you start just looking at the Breeders' Cup and working your way back, and then maybe all of a sudden the mile and an eighth plan doesn't fit as well? From your perspective inside the industry, how do you see mapping out a campaign for an incredibly talented, versatile horse like Matoli? Yeah. Well, certainly he's in the in the care of the Hall of Famer Steve Asbison, who's one of the best campaigners that we've seen in modern history. You, you look at what he's done with Curlin, Untappable, um, most recently Gunrunner. Um, he's he's the best at campaigning one, it, it, what I think. Um, certainly the way the horse came out of the race will dictate a lot. Um, sportsmanship come into this a lot. You know, he, he's obviously has proven that he's an elite to, and, and one of the top horses at seven furlongs in a mile. And, you know, if you were to stretch him out to a mile and eight, you would just cement him as one of one of those superstar horses that could go down the record books for a long time. Um, he certainly got the mile extremely well. Um, I thought, you know, both the Churchill Downs handicap and the Met Mile were just extremely impressive. Um, I, but he's a horse that gives you plenty of options because you're not forced into a certain type of race, whether it be a six furlong race or a seven furlong race, or if you want to stretch out and go a mile and eight. Obviously, we know that um, you would think that the Breeders' Cup, one of the Breeders' Cup races would be um, the ultimate goal for them, but you have races like the Forgo that's a seven furlong grade one that, that you know, certainly he'd probably walk in the gate as, as, the, uh, as, the, as the chalk favorite. Um, and probably any of the one-turn races throughout the year, he'd be the chalk favorite. Um, so, you know, it depends on, on what they want to achieve, um, but I'd like to be in their spot, that's for sure. <laughs> Those difficult questions to answer, but uh, like you said, you, 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 you envy them the ability to, to be in the position to make the choice. All right, I think we are ready to bring in our first guest. And now I'd like to welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree podcast, the Bloodstock Advisor for Fred Hertrick and John Fielding, Rob Tribbett. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Excellent. Wanted to start off by asking you about one of my favorite horses in training. Rushing Fall just continues this dominant run. Uh, and you were involved uh, on the breeding side with Rushing Fall. And I was just curious to get some background about when you knew how special this one was going to be. Well, you know, we usually see that the horses that are that special, like her or Cat's a Boy, they are from the beginning. She was always perfect uh, foal, perfect yearling, never had any issues, no surgeries, no bed issues. She just always was a queen. And what's it meant to you to, to watch this run from the sidelines? Oh, it's been great, you know, especially she was a filly that we loved. Um, it was one of the first fillies we took to Saratoga in a long time because we knew she could stand up to that stage, you know, which she did very well. And from the beginning, um, her connections you know, were very high on her, and we've uh, enjoyed watching her the whole way through. 
the race on Saturday, doing her thing once again. I mean, I thought it was never in doubt. What was your reaction to that performance? Yeah, I agree. You know, they, it wasn't the easiest trip, but once, um, you know, she went to, to kick home, there was nobody that was going to catch her. I think it's very hard um, to catch her when she gets on the lead like that. Hey, Rob, it's Sean here. Wanted to um, to see, you know, both uh, the interesting thing about uh, Rushing Fall and Catholic Boy, uh, both being by More Than Ready, and obviously yourself and, and, and Fred and John are, are big supporters of More Than Ready, and, and you guys have had a lot of success with them, both of them being out of two different type of mares. Um, how does it, How do you go about your, your breeding when you sit down in the fall and you start going through all your stallions and, um, and how, what is the process that, that your group takes? Obviously there's, there's been a lot of success over the last decade or so. Um, well, we're big believers in raising an athlete and that's what we're trying to breed and, and bring to market as commercial breeders. So our first focus is on the physical side of things. Um, Rushing Falls Dam, autumnal uh, and Catholic Boys Dam, Songer Bernadette, we're both uh, very good large large mares you know 16 2 16 3 which with more than ready that's something that uh, we you know find you need because he can throw a slightly smaller horse um so both were mares that we knew could handle uh, more than ready and the great thing with more than ready as a stallion is he gives you so much speed um you know, if your mare needs a little speed he really gives you that I have a question well, about that speed. I'm sorry to interrupt, Sean, but I, I do think that's an interesting angle with Rushing Fall, who you don't often see Chad Brown horses who go to the lead. It seems like so often he trains them in a different way. The plan with Rushing Fall, obviously a little bit different. Is that just because of that natural speed she has? There was no, there's no putting her back at the field and getting cover and, and making one run. It's just that that's the way she runs, and he's decided to, to go with that? Well, I think that's kind of evolved because, you know, when she broke her maiden, um, she didn't have a great trip. And then when she won the graded race at Keeneland as a two-year-old, she had a, a horrific trip um, off the pace. So I think, you know, in a lot of these races this year, I've, to me it seems like they know she's just the best horse by a long ways. So she gets to be on the front end, um, you know, to make sure she gets it clear. So obviously uh, coming up at Saratoga, we've got some sales coming up around the corner. Um, who are some of the uh, horses you guys are excited about putting in the ring and uh, maybe some siblings to, to uh, Rushing Fall or, or Catholic Boy or, or maybe just some uh, other, other horses that you guys are excited about selling uh, this year? Well, that's a great question, and as Sean mentioned, we've had a lot of success with More Than Ready, and this year in Saratoga, we're bringing the Riversifies half-brother, that's by More Than Ready, who is a New York bred, but we're putting him in the select sale because he's just really a, an awesome horse, and obviously with Diversify's success at the sales, um, or excuse me, on the track, you know, he's a very exciting prospect, and we have a couple Pioneer the Nile Colts for Keeneland, um, that were very, very high on the, you know, that's a stallion that unfortunately we lost too soon, but you know, his ability to, to sire top level Colts, you know, I think is pretty unparalleled in the business. And we have a couple Colts that are going to be early in Keelan that we're very excited about. Rob, we're going to pick your brain. Um, we're starting to get into the, to the meat of the two-year-old. We're right around the corner from Del Mar Ellis. 
and Saratoga and when we get to see a lot of these high-priced two-year-olds unleashed. Um, being that that Mr. Hardrick and, and, and John are, uh, you know, big into the stallion business as well, um, who are some of the uh, freshman horses that, that either you're involved with or horses that have stuck out uh, to you at the two-year-old sales so far? Um, well, certainly Honor Code was a horse that we had a lot of um, interest in as a stallion. We sold some very nice Honor Codes and hearing some great things about that. Um, he was such a great race horse out of, you know, the best pedigree you could you can imagine. And then the one other horse that we like quite a bit is Carpe Diem. He was a great-looking horse with a great two-year-old form. And I think they, they are horses that have really shown well at the two-year-old sales. Um, and as a group, I just think it's such a great group of first-crop stallions that we get to see run this year that we really could see a, a crop kind of like the Spitestown Tappet crop that, you know, has four or five major stallions on it. Yeah. Hopefully uh, Daredevil gets off the duck tomorrow. They say Norm Cassies can really run tomorrow at Churchill. Good. Good info. Good info there. And we're going to pop this podcast out there in the world right away. So that's of interest to the horse players listening. Rob, I wanted to talk to you about how you got your start in racing. That's something I know people are always asking us. They're really curious to hear stories of people who've become successful either on the handicapping horse player side or on the bloodstock side, such as yourself. Well, I grew up in the standard bread business. Uh, my father trained standard breads his entire life, and that's where I got my start. And Mr. Hertrick, in addition to having the, the large waterfest farm and the thoroughbreds, we also have about 60 standard bread mares that we sell commercial yearlings out of. So when I started working for Mr. Hertrick, I um, was mainly doing the, the standard bread side of things. And then Fred's former partner, Dr. Phil McCarthy, um, in Watercrest Farm, who unfortunately passed away at a young age, did a lot of the thoroughbred bloodstock and, and sales selection and such. So once Phil um, passed away, I kind of you know, started um, working more with Fred on that side of the business and the thoroughbreds. And we've really grown in the last five to seven years with our bloodstock and investment in stallions, as well as you know, we've added land to the farm. And it's just kind of been, you know, organic growth as, um, you know, we've ratcheted up our investment in the breeding business. Rob, you said something that was really interesting to me. We, we were fortunate enough to have Donato Laney on uh, not too long ago, and he mentioned his start was with standard breads as well. Is there something to this, or is it just coincidental that two of the most successful bloodstock advisors have a background in standard bread? Well, you know, of course, Chad Brown, you know, start, got his start in the standard bread business. Um you know, with standard red horses having to be gated you know, instead of just running, you know, there is um, you have to pay a little bit more attention to confirmation because they have to, you know, maintain their gait at all times. And then it's just a business that um, the horses race much more frequently, so soundness is something you have to pay more attention to. But in the end, I really think a horse is a horse, and you got someone, you know, obviously Bob Baffert and Lucas from the quarter horse business. I think in the end, we're all just trying to find and train and breed the athletes. And that's really in the end what succeeds. Great stuff, Rob. Thank you so much for your time today. We wish you continued success and hope to speak with you again in the near future. Thanks a lot. Well, that was fun, guys. Certainly interesting. And that was a great question you asked, JK, about the standard bread connection. 
And I can't help but wonder if, uh, I mean, obviously, the, some of it is, is what he says about the horse being a horse, and some of it must come down to um, just uh, luck. But you do wonder if some little bit of that outsider perspective doesn't help in some way, shape, or form. Sean, what's your take on it? Is it just an anomaly, or do you think that these guys are, are coming at it from an angle that's a little bit different than typical? Um. I mean, yes, the horse is a horse, but, um, you know, I think it's just a, they they're extremely talented. Um, but it's taking those experiences and that knowledge that you get from being around really any type of horse. Um, you know, some of the little tricks that people have from the standard bed world, from the show jumping world, from the quarter horse world that, you know, can, can translate over to, to, to the thoroughbred world i think that's just more experience and helps helps set set yourself apart uh and and try to be at the top of the game that's for sure i'll tell you what pete and sean donato's one of the best bloodstock advisors started in, in, in standard bread rob's one of the best uh, breeding bloodstock advisors started in the in standard bread chuck grubbs won the breeders cup betting challenge professional standard bread uh better I'm about to see who's running tonight at, uh, up at Woodbine and see if I can try to figure some stuff out here. Pretty interesting coincidence. It's pretty funny. All right, we're going to do a new segment on the other show. Sometimes we do those Ask ITM segments, Ask In The Money. We're going to do some Ask ITR. We have some, some basic breeding industry questions from horse players, and I think this is as good a forum as any, and we're just going to dive right in. The, the most basic question was generally about how the industry works, the decisions that go into breeding horses that you're going to race versus breeding horses that you're going to sell, and you know where do how does one... Uh, how does one pick a mating? That was another question we had. Let's just start with the basics, Sean, of how the industry works in terms of the breeding farms and what goes into the decision to to sell or race a horse. Um, f- you know, just using Windstar as an example, basically we breed, A, when you sit down to do the mating, it's what's going to produce the best racehorse. Uh, some people's program are you know based around trying to maximize their mare and the stallion they breed to and and their their return on investment but um we we certainly sit down it first starts with trying to mate the best racehorse and what's the best mating uh what's the best stallion you can find for for that mare um and then it, it goes into um for us you know Basically, we, we consider that we're going to sell 100% of our, our crop. Now, um, as the process begins, when we start seeing the foals and then we start watching the, the yearlings, um, certainly our top mares, st- horses that have a stallion pedigree, um, we, we do decide to keep some of those horses. For example, a horse called Seize the Day, who's a carpe diem, half to new money honey. He's a homebred of ours that just got shipped out to Bob Baffert. He's a horse that we decided to keep. Uh, we sold the mare, but he was the, uh, the last son out of the mare. And he's a horse that if, if he hits, we have the stallion and he could be a horse that we could put in the stallion barn. Um, you know, the majority of our crop goes through the sales. We do protect them. We don't necessarily uh, let every single one of them go. And, and we do take partners on, on 
homebreds too that go through the ring. So, but that's our business model. Our, our business is, is to offer um, our product, which is a Windstar bred and raised uh, uh, athlete at the sale. And then that, that helps support everything else, our racing stable, our, our broodmare band, um, our stallions. So um, that's, that's our model. Um, but there are many different models that work as well. Let's talk about the sales specifically. All horse sales are public sales, essentially, and there are different types. Can you give the listeners an overview, uh, just a very basic overview of the different types of thoroughbred sales? There's um, basically three slash four uh, sales you have. You have a breeding stock sale, which would be mares, foals. Um, you have a horse of racing age sale, which are horses that have already run. Uh, you also have two-year-old sales, which are two-year-olds, uh, that breeze in front of you. Um, and then you have yearling sales, which are all, all horses that are a year old and you get to see them walk up and down, uh, the shed row and you, and you select them based on pedigree and physicals. And the way that the difference in those sales too, there's a lot having to do with risk and reward am i right sean depending on at what point in a horse's career you're you're getting involved the closest a horse is to being a fully formed athlete is it right to say that you're going to expect to pay more a little bit further down the line or does it not work that way um yes and no certainly any horse that goes fast at a, at a two-year-old breeze show is going to bring a lot of money um Curlin at Miami this year brought $3.5 million, I believe it was, um, as opposed to yearlings may have a little bit more of a ceiling on them. Uh, a million five to two million would be kind of your, your sales toppers in today's world. Um, but there are different buyers at all these sales. Some, some buyers uh, that race only go to yearling sales. So they're going to go in there and try to buy the best horses. Um, so you have them competing against each other at, at those sales as well, where, uh, it elevates, you know, when you're gonna have to pay a lot for, for the best. Sean, if I'm getting involved in the game and I, I want to, uh, to, I want to breed, I want to own, I want to race, I want to pin hook. I want to, I want to do everything, right? I want a full, full, uh, full slate. And I had came to you and I said, I have $25 million. How would we spend that 25 million? Would we, Will we spend some on mares? Will we do no two-year-olds, some two-year-olds, yearlings, none, breeding? Where, where will we? How do we spend this money uh, in a, just a very generic way, if you could explain? Um, I'm always a big believer in diversification. So anybody who wants to get in, unless you're getting in for a specific reason, if you're getting in only to race, then you're only going to buy yearlings or two-year-olds and you're going to race them. Um, but if you're looking to get into the business and the industry, diversification is, is the best way to, to get involved. Um, certainly, you know, you, you would get involved in mares. You'd probably try to do a little bit with, with, uh, wheeling to yearly pin hook. Um, that would give you more action throughout the year. If you were only breeding, you'd have to wait 11 months to get the resulting full, and then you'd have to wait another six to seven months to sell the horse. So if you buy a weanling to pin, you know, you, you at least have more opportunities to have a steady cash flow, which is necessary in this game. Um, you don't want it to be tied up completely in horses. You want to be able to have some liquidity. But diversification is, is by far 
the most important aspect if you are looking to get into the business of horse racing. We had a question about a, a word of jargon that you both use there. Uh, one of our listeners wanted to know what pin hooking is. Sean, you've been talking a lot. JK, I think that's a breeding question that you can handle. <laughs> Woo, you gave me an easy one. I was nervous. Um, well, Sean could probably elaborate on it, but from what I understand, it's when guys are buying yearlings and then they sell them as two-year-olds. So they buy a yearling for 500 they let the horse grow up. They send it to a farm. They, they break the horse. They train the horse. They, they, uh, they work the horse a little bit. Then they show up at a two-year-old sale. They, you know, they go the, the, uh, the furlong or the two furlongs or whatever it is, and then they uh, hopefully can turn a profit, and that's considered a successful pin hook. Did I mess that up, Sean? I think you hit the nail right on the head. Um, <laughs> pretty generic term. Basically, it's just saying you're buying a horse at a certain stage of its life and you're going to resell it at another stage in its life. So whether that be weanling to yearling, uh, yearling to two-year-old, uh, maiden mare to pregnant mare, uh, that's all pin hooking. It's buying to resell, basically. It's just a fancy word. What goes into the decision, Sean? What makes a horse uh, – where does the value come from, I guess, when you're, when you're going through that process? Um, you know – Certainly, uh, some of the best pin hookers have that imagination, um, and, and that's, a, that's a really key ingredient is, is the imagination, is you have to be able to, um, at any stage of looking at a horse, you have to sit there and try to forecast what that animal is going to be. And so some of these great pin hookers, they can see that horse that's only six, seven months old and, and can forecast them being, uh, you know, either either a yearling at 18 months of age or or even a two-year-old racehorse um so so having that imagination is to me what what separates the the absolute uh cream to the cream but you know it, a lot of it is is um is is doing homework it's it's learning the pedigrees it's having a sense of the market um you know, if it, there might be a horse in that pedigree that's not on the page yet, that 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 somebody has some type of knowledge of, and and you buy it and and it and it works out, and then you got a black type horse update on your pedigree. So um, a lot of that comes into play. Uh, really, just hustling and doing the homework, and 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 uh, learning all the families and the pedigrees, and knowing what's going on out in in the marketplace and on the racetrack. Sounds like flipping a house. We're flipping a house, right? I mean, we're buying something for a hundred. We're going to do some renovations. Obviously, the renovations aren't necessarily under your control, and then we're going to try to sell it for a profit. It's essentially the, the the flipping of a horse. And I would imagine that the stallion market might also have something to do with it. Is that is that right, Sean? Just if you're making a bet on that certain progeny a certain sire say is going to become more fashionable potentially uh, a year from now than than he is now or is that too in the weeds no certainly i mean the stallion market is one of the biggest barometers uh and certainly there there's certain people um and breeders that that they play that that as you mentioned earlier that risk reward uh, breeding to like fourth year horses, for example, like a horse like Carpe Diem, uh, Daredevil, Constitution. These are horses that have first two year olds. So if they come out and they bang with their two year olds, uh, mares that are going to be in fold to him this coming fall, 
uh, foals on the ground next year, yearlings. They're all going to have more value uh, based on the success of those of, of that stallion, especially in the early on in his career. And then it just it can balloon from there. I mean, you know, most of our horses and, and the majority of stallions in Kentucky are syndicated. Um, and that's something, you know, Mr. Hertrig and Fielding, they, they play in that game quite a bit as well, uh, which Rob kind of had alleviated to, but, um, you know, that's, that's another thing is share trading. And there's a lot of people who invest in stallions. And, and when one of those horses hit, like for example, Stuart humor, who was a horse that got basically thrown in with the purchase price of a horse farm. And he was standing for $5,000. Next thing you know, the sheik of, uh, of Dubai are, are buying shares in them for $2 million. So, I mean, these, <laughs> these are the things that, that can happen. And these are the things that, that, you know, everybody gets up early in the morning trying to accomplish. It's an amazing business when you think of it like that. Here's a horse player question, JK, I'll hit you with. We talked about those two-year-old sales before. What are the angles when you're looking at two-year-old sales information? What, what are you looking at that's going to help you as a horse player in terms of picking winners? Yeah, one of the things that I've tried to do, but I don't exactly have a great eye for, for what I'm looking at, but you can watch the workout videos that usually posted online, uh, whether it's Phasic or OBS, and you can actually find the video, watch the video of a horse that may be debuting at Saratoga. You can get an idea of how they worked and how fast they were early. Was the rider using the stick a lot? How was the gallop out? How was their action? You can look at those things for clues. Um, but it's also a, a slippery slope, right? If you don't know what you're looking at, it can be a little bit misleading. The other thing is if you see a horse who didn't work very fast but sold for a high number, I think that's a little bit of a clue as well to kind of to, to kind of maybe the talent or, or some some unknowns that could propel that horse to winning first time out. I don't think it's something helpful when the horses have already kind of jumped on the track to see what they were doing in two-year-old sales, but I do think it's very helpful – uh, when they're debuting up at Saratoga and, and you'll see a horse that, you know, doesn't show up in the workout report. So you don't know how the horse, if they have any talent or, or whatnot. Uh, I think it's just the next level of looking at that sales price to kind of lead you down a path of, of right or wrong or a possible wager. I'll piggyback on with the idea of looking at the purchase price relative to the stud fee. And I want your thought on this too, Sean. But I feel like that's sort of a proxy for the ability to actually look at the workout and determine its value is to just know, hey, this sire is a $10,000 a year sire and this horse sold for 150 in a two, and we're talking specifically about two-year-old in training sales, you know, a couple months before the horse makes its first race. I would imagine, I haven't looked at the data on this, but I would imagine if you could look at that number of the, the, the multiple of the purchase price versus the stud fee, there'd be some signal in that that would, there'd be an impact value that would help you to pick winners. Sean, obviously you're a horse player as well. What do you look at when you're looking at these first time starters who came out of two year old training sales? Um, certainly slow horses. Uh, or, or expensive horses are not cheap. So the higher the purchase price, uh, certainly the more talent uh, they believe this horse had. Um, I also think, you know, something that I've, I've noticed recently is, um, especially in these earlier two-year-old races, um, or horses that did go through a two-year-old sale, um, there might be a little bit more fit, a little bit more advanced, and, and typically win these races 
uh, early on as opposed to maybe a horse that didn't go through a two-year-old sale. Uh, so handicapping-wise, that's something um, that jumps off more than anything um, is, is, is that if they've gone through that pressure of a two-year-old sale already, um, then they're, they're a little bit more prepared for, for the dance than, than the horses that have it. Sean, when I'm looking at the PPs, is there an easy cheat? Can I just say that any sale that happened this year was a two-year-old in training sale if they're running as two-year-olds? Is that, is that accurate? As, as far as, like, the information they put in the program? Like, right. No, yeah, so, like, if, if someone's not familiar that OBS whatever March is a two-year-old sale, can, can they have a clue by just seeing a horse that was sold in 2019 that's running in 2019? Was, does that have to be at a two-year-old sale, or is that not an exact science? No, but I mean, if it's a two-year-old and it's sold in a in a 2019 uh, sale, then then that indicates that it's sold as a two-year-old. I so, think what well, I think what JK is asking is, are there two-year-old sales that aren't two-year-old in training sales? No. So no. there you go. So it's so you will know that that's going to be based on some some type of workout information, and we've got just a minute left. Did you have a follow-up, JK? I do. While we were talking, I was sitting at the computer and I saw the overnight came out uh, for Churchill Downs on Saturday night. There is a horse that I absolutely love that I've been waiting to bet back. And that is Varinka, who was closing out the pick five or the double or the pick three. And I noticed that our good friend, Sean Tugel, knows a little bit about two horses that were in the race before that. Give us the update on Quip and Yoshida, if you don't mind. Uh, I wish we hadn't drawn necessarily the 10 and the 12 hole. But um, both are doing exceptionally well. Um, Yoshida saw him yesterday morning when he shipped down from Saratoga into Bill Mott's barn. Has a glow in his coat, so he looks extremely healthy. Uh, this will be his first race back since Dubai. Uh, ran, you know, if you go back and watch his his Breeders' Cup Classic, I mean that horse was rolling. And, and wasn't beaten far at all, and, and, and thunder, snow, and was a good third. But, you know, thunder, snow, and obviously accelerate, I mean, two unbelievable horses, and he was only beaten about two lengths. So I know he likes Churchill Downs. He's a grade one winner there on the turf, and he was only beaten two lengths in the Breeders' Cup Classic there. So uh, I shortening back up to the mile and eighth, which I, which I think he'll, he will appreciate. Um, so he, he should be able to sit a good trip. You know, he's not a horse that's going to have a lot of early speed. So the 12 isn't going to be, uh, all the speed will be down inside him. Uh, Quip coming off the Oakland handicap win. He likes spacing between his races. They galloped over the track this morning. And Rudy said he had a hole of the bit and was loving the track. So, um, you know, this is going to be a, a big step up for him, I think. You know, it's probably a field he would have faced outside of the Preetness last year, which he had enough excuses in there. We're just lucky that we have two classy older horses that uh, that we can take over there on Saturday night, and uh, hopefully we can get our picture taken. <laughs> That's the plan. All right, that is all the time we have. I want to thank Jonathan Kinchin and Sean Tugel, as well as our special guest, Rob Tribbett, for joining us today. That's it from where we sit. 
This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatal. May the hammer drop your way.